Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm the host of Your Legal Rights, Jeff Hayden, and joining me as tonight's co-host, NBC legal and political analyst, Dean Johnson. Tonight we're going to talk about crime. This is usually a grim subject. Rising crime rates are a staple in the talking points of politicians and those who trade for votes. But tonight, we're going to try to offer some hope. Dean? You know, Jeff, during the 1990s, the Bay Area city of East Palo Alto was in the headlines just about every day. Uh, East Palo Alto was a community that was overrun by crime, poverty, drugs, the crack academic. The crack epidemic and public corruption. And that led to EPA having the nation's highest per capita homicide rate, higher than Detroit, higher than Chicago. And EPA eventually earned the infamous nickname of America's homicide cap. Last week, There was a headline in some of the local papers that mostly got ignored. EPA reported its homicide rate for 2023. The homicide rate in East Palo Alto, America's former homicide capital, for last year was zero. There were no homicides in East Palo Alto. So tonight... We want to celebrate some good news. And we want to ask, how did this happen? Have they solved the crime problem? Are we going to put the district attorney out of business? Jeff, what do you think? I think, as always, we want you, our most important guest, to join in our conversation. So give us a call. Our phone number right here is 415-841-841. 4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Bear in mind that our guests, attorney guests, hosts, we're here to educate and inform. None of us can provide specific legal advice for specific cases. We haven't seen them, but we're all here to help and give guidance as you try to sort out legal principles. principles. And with that, Dean, who did you line up for tonight? You know, Jeff, I'm very excited to have our guest tonight. I just recently met him, um, and he is someone that I think we're going to hear a lot from in the future. Antonio Lopez, was born in East Palo Alto and raised in East Palo Alto, the son of Mexican immigrants. Then he attended Duke University and Oxford University and Rutgers. In 2020, he returned home to EPA to begin a PhD at Stanford. And he found a community that was facing the same problems that it had when he left. That pain and the struggles of our elected officials to fix it drove Antonio to get involved. At a very young age, he ran for the city council 
and he won a city council seat in East Palo Alto by a landslide total of 69 votes. He's currently the mayor of East Palo Alto, and he's also a candidate for higher office. But tonight, this is all about the success story of not only Antonio Lopez, but East Palo Alto itself. And with that, Mr. Mayor, welcome to your legal rights. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honored. Before we go... Go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say, before we ask questions of our guest... We have a guest on the phone. Uh, let me welcome Liz from Oakland. Welcome to your legal rights. Hi there. My name is Liz. I'm so curious. What do you guys think about the impact of gentrification and the rate of homicides uh, in the area that you guys are reporting on? Do you think that's impacting the, the rate of homicides in that area because of the level of gentrification from the tech industry? You must have looked at our proposed show for tonight because you're about halfway through the things we wanted to talk about. But, yes, that is something that's on our agenda. Um, Dean, you want that's to jump awesome. ahead? And, you want to take a, he- take a look ahead and get into that now? Or you think we yeah, should? Yeah, I mean, we can talk about that. And I know Antonio can talk about that. You know, Antonio came back from Oxford and was was at Stanford. And Antonio, you were literally on the other side of the tracks. Um, what made you go back to East Palo Alto and, and run for office? I would say it's the responsibility I feel. You know, in East Palo Alto, we didn't have many opportunities for young people. You have to keep in mind for the viewers, we were incorporated in San Mateo County 1983. And much of the dot-com boom that was driving the Palo Alto of the world, the Mountain Views of the world, we missed that development. Not to mention the crack era epidemic in the 80s, which I know we're going to discuss. But for me, as the son of Mexican immigrants, I have a responsibility to make a difference in my community. I've been blessed with teachers and educators and two parents that even though they didn't finish high school in Mexico, they believed in education. They believed in the promise of the United States to give us opportunities that they didn't have in their homeland. And sure, East Palo Alto was a community that was ravaged and redlined and blockbusted. But here we had the opportunity to go to school, get an education. We had teachers that cared about us, invested in us. So for me, I came back because I want to be the example I want to see in the world. I want to see more young people, more progressive folks, folks who don't feel they have to leave to be successful, that we can come back and create institutions for education, for entertainment, for the art, for the culture. And that we don't feel beholden to have to leave. So for me, it was an enormous sense of responsibility as, as you introduced me. I'm blessed to go to the schools I went to. And if I'm worth anything in my salt, it's to roll up my sleeves and get involved. And for the young viewers listening too, it's, it's, you're never too young to make a difference. And I think a lot about the civil rights, uh, figures and icons that I look up to and how old they were when they were doing the sit-ins, when they were doing the boycotts, when they were getting involved in their communities. And so just in summary, I owe everything to my community. Of course, we Google East Palo Alto, and it's still a a mixed bag. But for me growing up, I never felt poor, even if we were two families living in a single family house, because we had a sense of purpose being in this community. We had a tight knit culture. We had a we're in this together camaraderie as a community that is in the heart of Silicon Valley and yet left so much out of that checkbook. So I would say in summary, it's the sense of responsibility that I felt when I ran for office and that I still feel to this day. 
that drives me to do the work that I do every day. Well, let's follow up on Liz's question. I, th- I think it's a great question because we've talked about this topic on the show a number of times. Um, I think most economists would tell us that gentrification in places like, say, San Francisco has been a disaster as the Silicon Valley people moved in with their high salaries and their stock options. They drove up the prices of real estate and drove the people who were, say, marginal but able to, to, to afford housing out. And that is one of the very simple ways to, and one of the primary ways to explain the homelessness problem in San Francisco. Do you think that gentrification, having the, the heart of the heart of Silicon Valley, you know, literally on the borderline, uh, with, with East Palo Alto, has that been helpful or has that been hurtful to East Palo Alto? I would say it's both. And the question is how we leverage it. Look, change is inevitable. I mean, this was a city that in the 1930s had a Japanese-American population. And then, of course, due to internment camps, were displaced. And, of course, the African-Americans moved in the 60s. And then my family, who came in the 80s. And now, as you alluded to, now that East Palo Alto is a place attractive and ripe for development, there is a, an influx of tech and middle-class workers looking to look for a better life. And, you know, as a son of immigrants, I'm not here to put any walls on anyone wanting to find a better future for themselves. But I would also say, and I remind people, that our very first mayor, Barbara Mouton, was on the Palo Alto Weekly in the 80s saying, we want development for East Palo Alto. Nobody wanted to build in East Palo Alto. The only, the biggest revenue that we had, Dean, was the two McDonald's that we had for decades. Right. So when you're talking about gentrification, I look at it as a more ambitious scope. I look at it as economic justice for a community that for 40 years has been politically independent, but is still ripe for economic independence. Because, as you said, we live in the Silicon Valley. Many of these regional forces are inevitably going to impinge on our residents, particularly as we fail to build adequate housing. There was a 2019 Silicon Valley Business Insider magazine that showed that for every six jobs that we've created, we've only created one unit of housing. So here's East Palo Alto, this little David and Goliath story that is trying to create and preserve residents in spite of these enormous Goliath uh, economic uh, engines. But at the same time, as mayor and as someone who hasn't, who growing up didn't have a supermarket to go to, someone who didn't have a library that was adequate enough to space our residents, right? For black and brown folk to want institutions and things that they deserve, that we don't have to drive to Costco or somewhere to get our real groceries, I think that's the minimum that our residents deserve. So I would say gentrification has been a mixed blessing for East Palo Alto. But I do believe that as, as a city, 25 miles from San Francisco and 20 from San Jose, we are... Our greatest asset is our location, as it is, but it's also an Achilles heel. So I think we've we've shown a model where if we leverage the developers, if we come to the table and ask, we want affordable housing, we want workforce development, we want expansion, arts and culture, education. I just attended a groundbreaking ceremony where one of the developers donated $30 million for the new community center at, at a Ravenswood School District. And so I think that much of the, I don't operate in black and white binaries. I operate in 
what's going to help the residents of my city? What are going to be the facilities that they deserve to see? And with a general fund revenue of $53 million, where are going to be the coffers? Whose pants are we going to shake that we're going to make sure that our community is going to live, not just live in, in the Silicon Valley, but thrive? You know, I grew up on the peninsula myself and watching the history unfold. It seems that when when we saw businesses, when we saw large businesses before Silicon Valley, and they were looking to locate in this unincorporated area known as East Palo Alto, it seemed like one of the neighboring communities, particularly Menlo Park, would grab up the land and set them up. And that was the dynamic until East Palo Alto incorporated in 1983. And it was still that way where people avoided that city until about the turn of the century. In about 2000, we started seeing changes such as Whiskey Gulch, which for those who didn't know it was an area of – remains an area of East Palo Alto that was pretty cut off from the freeway and and ignored. And now there's a lot of growth in that area with large high-rises and a major hotel and the like. Can you put – that history and a little bit of perspective in regards to what you were just saying and what changed. It's interesting. When people drive through the 101 and they see that big glass building called the Four Seasons, you know, I always think about my predecessors. And as, as, as listeners may know, East Palo Alto was predominantly African-American for much of its history from the 60s onward. And now it's majority Latino. And we can definitely talk about those demographic changes and how those tensions play out in the community, the the blessings, the opportunities for coalition building. But again, I I want y'all to to, to just put in perspective, you have a generation of African-Americans who are coming from the South, who are coming to pursue better life. There's a gentleman by the name of Bob Hoover, who's in his 90s now. He still tells me today that he was denied housing in Palo Alto because of his skin color, right? We still have elders who feel the sting of not just, you know, default de, uh, de facto Jim Crow, but de jure. I mean, I'm talking the eras of racial restrictive covenants, the eras of redlining. That was the context in which in the 80s, when much of the leadership, which again, multi-ethnic, became incorporated, we had a chip on our shoulder. We had a sense of we have something to prove that this city, which was headlined in CBS by the Dan Rathers of the world, as you said, the murder capita, what are we going to be represented by? What are going to be the things that are going to epitomized East Palo Alto. And so when you have a place like the Four Seasons in the 2000s, turn of the century, where there's no major economic revenue for the city, and you think about what a Four Seasons represents, what it symbolizes, many of the council members, it was an all-black council, which decided to turn over those uh, small businesses of the Whiskey Gulch because in the 30s, from the 30s onward, it had a reputation of being a maroon-like district, a place that maybe it wasn't as savory or as elegant as it could be. So we also have to think about the racial politics, the emotional politics of this community that has been left out by so many of the economic growth moments in our Silicon Valley history. And suddenly, once it's incorporated, what are going to be the land use policies that are going to elevate it, elevate its status, elevate its profile, elevate its revenue? And so I never, I never fault my predecessors for the decisions they make because we're working with what we have. And so for me, uh, that area, the nail salons, the barbershops, I mean, it was, it was a cultural damage to the community 
but one that I understand was necessary to an extent because, again, we wanted to have an increase in revenue, the TOT, transportation occupancy tax. And more broadly, symbolically, when you're surrounded by the Palo Altos in the world, the Athertons of the world, and you are routinely seen as this city where, frankly, people just want to experiment with it, where there are these pilot programs and Stanford comes in and says, we're going to have teachers and tutors. I mean, I'm not critical of anyone who wants to help these Palo Altos, but much of the history of our city has been, let's pilot in East Palo Alto. Let's, let's, let's try it there first. And for me, as someone who wants the best for my residents, I want to make sure that, again, if we're putting a four season, if we're putting economic revenue, I want my city to be able to benefit from it. And I think, I think at bottom, the crux of the issue is we're trying to pull the limited levers we have and make the most of it. But if I can spin a positive direction again, as we look towards our, our you know, we've never had a downtown East Palo Alto. And now we have an opportunity with the Ravens of Business District, the northern part of the city, to really create that a, a waterfront where we can really have amazing parks and benefits and nightlife. It's something that, you know, as a city that doesn't really truly have a place where you can do a fork and knife, it's going to be transformational. And I think we're at that next stage in the city. I think the zero homicides that we've seen mark the watershed moment where the city of East Palo Alto, as a majority minority community, is going to usher in. Is there, is there a way of having equitable development? Is there a way you can grow as a city but not kick out the residents who've lived here? That is something, that is a question I'm arguing and pol- policymaking every single day. And that's what I'm committed to figuring out alongside my residents and my colleagues. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. In just a couple of decades, East Palo Alto went from the murder capital of the nation to suffering zero homicides last year. How did they accomplish this feat? Are there techniques that can be applied to larger cities? Tonight's guest, East Palo Alto Mayor Antonio Lopez, is here to tell us what tools were used and how these can be employed elsewhere. If you have questions for my guest, our phone number is 415-841-4134. And again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can join in really anything you want to ask about tonight's conversation. You want to talk about East Palo Alto. You want to ask Mayor Lopez how he got where he is. Whatever your interest, you're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. Dean? Yeah, so full disclosure here. Um, During the 90s, East Palo Alto was the homicide capital of America. That meant that our local district attorney had to prosecute a lot of murder cases. Um, and that meant that his deputies were trying back, back, back murders. Most of them related to the trade in crack. Um, and full disclosure is the homicide deputy who was trying those cases was me. Uh, and I remember sitting looking at our our trial calendar for the week that we got in the district attorney's office and recognizing that probably eight out of ten 
of the cases that were on the trial calendars were were homicide cases or were drug-related cases, and a large percentage were coming out of East Palo Alto. All of a sudden, things started to, those cases started to decline, and there were fewer and fewer of them. And one day while I was in the DA's office, I asked one of my informants, now how come we're seeing fewer homicides? And he said, well, you know, we've had so many murder cases that everybody that needed to be killed was killed, and everybody that needed to go to prison has pretty much gone to prison. So... I'm wondering, Antonio, is that the reason that East Palo Alto started to turn around or what turned it around? What happened to the crack pandemic? What was the big event that started the decline in East Palo Alto's crime rate? And as Jeff said, is this something that's that's repeatable and scalable? Could it be delivered to other cities? What do you think? I believe it can. And to answer your question, well, there's the 80s and then there's now. And you mentioned the cracker epidemic. And of course, I was born in, in 94, so I haven't, I didn't live it. But many of the elders and even my father who came in 83. And, you, you know, there are people in this community that stood on the corners or watched from their windows. And they would take down the license plate of the drug peddler. They would report hot tips to the police. They would... Be, there, there would be what they called it the Just Us movement, where you had community watch groups that said enough is enough. We're tired of the 42 homicides that we had in 92. And I think that's what happened. There's a, there's a, there's a critical juncture point where a community becomes fed up with the same routine. Death, report, going to the funeral, condolences and prayers, and repeat. And, I, and something that I really think about a lot is as we progress as a city, how much grief we're still bearing and how much trauma that many of my residents are st- I have experienced over time. Because again, these are things that are happening within our lifetimes. But I would say, number one, it was those community watch groups. I mean, those folks, those brave men and women, and, and, and my neighbor, Miss Tiambe, 80 plus years old, African-American woman, would tell me that she would stand up on the corners and tell these young men, what are you guys up to? What are you guys doing? You know, it's easier to ridicule an officer, I suppose, if you're a drug peddler. But if it's an older black woman trying to just give you a piece of her mind who lives there, who is saying, what are you doing? The community itself castigating you, that's a different message. And what was successful back then is what's successful now. It's a multifaceted approach where we have civic institutions. We have churches. We have nonprofits that are providing rehabilitative programs, reentry programs. I myself was part of an after school program when I was a kid. And I remember in the 90s and 2000s, a lot of the gang culture of the Norteños and Sureños was still prominent. But what kept us out of trouble were those programs, was the Boys and Girls Club. In other words, Dean, there was a blossoming of, of, of different organizations focused on youth. One East Palo Alto, the Lord's Gym, Muhammad Ali Center, Live in Peace. Um, everybody rolling up their sleeves because they have those intimate memories of burying young children. And I also believe, fast forwarding to our present moment, when we had five homicides in 2022, that the chief of police, Mr. Jeff Liu, which I want to shout out on the airwaves and his commendable work, his decision and his leadership to say, 
we're going to go after every single one of those cases and solve them. And that is exactly what we did. After the hum- after the death of um, Ralph Fields, we installed cameras in the parks. We ramped up and I gave direction. I'm someone who was supportive of this. At that time, we were only paying 80% of what our police officers had per, uh, with, the, with the county average. And, you know, when you think about the conversation of policing, which I'm interested in, and on the national stage, Minneapolis is the world, the Ferguson is the world. How does policing look like for a city of two and a half square miles, 30,000 people with a police force that has been diversified over the years, but has not been paid its adequate salary compared to the rest of the county? So we were losing officers. At one point, we were only had in 2022 one officer per 10,000 people. And so I think a healthy, balanced approach of having police force that can adequately address the pop- the issues of the community. But that's just the first step. You have to create, like any policy, you have to create buy-in with the community. They have to be on board. And most of our residents are. Um, because again, and even me, as someone who grew up in the 90s, I remember just walking to school or coming back home and you would sometimes see the candles of people who were passed away, the cardboard signs, the balloon streamers, the portraits of these young kids, man. You don't even have mustaches. And it stays with you and it motivates you to say, I don't care what it's going to take to make my community safe, but darn it, I'm going to do it. And I think it's that boldness. I think it's that ambition. I think it's that drive to make these this small community the safest place, not just in the Bay Area, but in America, I believe it's that boldness that we've always had as a city. We've always been a pioneer with our just cause eviction, with our rent freeze, with our rent stabilization ordinance, with our tenant protection. We're going to continue to be bold. As as an agent of government, though, how do you engineer that? How do you, um, as, as a matter of government policy, get the community to get that kind of involvement to lead to that kind of solution. Yeah, as I said, I, I, it's, it's the civic institutions. It's the middle folks. It's the churches. It's the, you know, East Palo Alto is blessed to have so many faith-based institutions, and many of our community members uh, rally around notions of faith, ideas of drug. Because when you grew up, I mean, when you grew up with less than your neighbors, when you grew up having to walk to the store like we did, faith is really the strongest thing you have. I mean, this morning, this afternoon, I was at a I was at a trial hearing, uh, supporting a, a tenant, and as the as 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 she went to the stand, this uh, this woman who didn't speak any English was a tenant. I could see the other ladies, you know, passing the rosary down, doing the holy water, and so I think the notion of faith and the notion of civic institutions that are organizing the community to really rally around this idea of public safety. And creating spaces where people can heal, people can uh, find solace in the darkest of times. I think that's always been East Palo Alto's secret weapon, the ability to triumph and shake the ashes of its past. And so civic institutions like churches are key. The nonprofits that I mentioned, we do we spend 20 percent of our budget on community development. And that includes efforts that tackle anti-displacement, efforts that tackle public safety, like Measure C. So I think it's. Dean, to be very specific, it's investing in those infrastructures that are already doing the work, but that need more support, that need more resources in order to expand its outreach and really deliver the best, highest level of service for our residents, whether it's the Free at Last Center 
on Bay Road, which is providing rehabilitation programs, whether it's the David reentry program on university, which is helping our formerly incarcerated folks step back into society, whether it's our ecumenical hunger program, which I see every day I go to City Hall giving food to folks in need. It's that safety net that you feel when you drive through the 101 and get to East Palo Alto. It's the sense of it doesn't matter where you're from, what color you are, what you've done. We're going to do our best to give you that second chance. And I think that's that that level, that emphasis on obviously community policing, on education over punishment, of investing in those folks who were sometimes seen as not as worthy of investment. I think it's that 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 has been this recipe for success for our city. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 San Francisco Bay Area. We have some interesting shows in queue for you. Next week, we will feature new laws, new laws on the front of labor and employment laws. In two weeks, we're back with our landlord-tenant broadcast. And the week after that, we're talking about neighbor disputes. What do you do when you just can't live with the person next door? That's coming up on Your Legal Rights. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. And we're back. And... Before we go further, we've been talking a little bit of history. And, Mr. Mayor, when we were talking about the history of the 1990s and the early 2000s, seemed that one of the major factors that was really pushing not just the homicide rate but crime in general was the crack epidemic. That seems to have subsided. Is there still a major drug problem in East Palo Alto? I would say nowhere near as much as it was. I'm not going to completely say there isn't any issue with drugs in our community because I'll answer this in a different way. Um, As part of my leadership in these past couple of years, I've been involved in co-creating a coalition against sex trafficking in the city. And one of the things that we've we've seen, and I've worked with nonprofits in the East Bay, like Love Never Fails, to study this, it's not out in the open anymore. A lot of this is behind closed doors. It's it's not pimps and johns. It's online conversations and and sort of uh, you know setting those up online. And so, if I haven't seen it, that doesn't mean it's not there. But I will say that. We've done a tremendous job in quelling it. You know, certainly issues like the crack epidemic are no longer here. Um, I think what's now more troubling on a county level, on a larger level, is the fentanyl overdoses, um, where we, I'm sure you know those statistics just like I do, where the in terms of the deaths of young people, one out of five of those reasons is because of the fentanyl overdose. And so I think just seeing that those kinds of drugs out in the community the, how potent they are, how dangerous they are. I do remember one time when there was a homeless homeless encampment during the pandemic, uh, our officers administered Narcan, and that allowed 
the the individual in question to be resuscitated. So for me, I I, I never want to just celebrate for celebrate's sake, but touch wood that has not been a concern that I, that has risen to the level of uh, the city's attention. And you know, our, our show is broadcast out of San Francisco, and we're not that far to the north. And in San Francisco, there's the fentanyl epidemic that's monopolizing right. the narrative in San Francisco with open-air drug use and dealing for all to see. How is it that these drug traffickers haven't found their way to set up shop in East Palo Alto? What is it you're doing right that's kept those very forces out of your own community? We're giving people resources so that they don't have to resort to drugs. I mean, you think about the psychology of someone who's resorting to drug abuse. They're in poverty. They're desperate. They have issues of substance abuse, maybe intergenerational trauma, all of the above a lot of times. They're homeless, right? So it's not, you know, the issue of substance abuse isn't a criminal issue. It's a health one. And you think about the profile of those residents who are facing the traumas that make them resort to drug usage. You know, I, I think of programs, successful programs during the pandemic of the RV safe parking program, uh, where from, for many years we provided alternative RV safe parking for our residents. We were the first program in the peninsula to usher this in. And after years of doing this work, dozens of families have found adequate housing. They were able to find shelters in place. They were able to find a refuge. And of course, right. It's not just housing. I mean, we also had uh, organizations like um, a project We Hope, which are providing showers. They're, they're 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 liaising with social workers. They're working with the county, right? Like it's when you when you meet someone, you have to figure out what are the different layers of violence that they're experiencing, and what are going to be the resources they can provide. And I think East Palo Alto, with the enormous heart that it has by necessity, has had to cultivate in direct people. Very effectively, if you're a victim of domestic assault, there's Cora. If you're if you're a victim of sex trafficking, there's there there's the EPAC group that we co-founded. And so I think it's that approach, not going to police just immediately, but giving people that second chance to turn to alternative existing organizations and centers and programs. I mean, Free at Last, the rehabilitation program is celebrating its 30th year this year. And I'll be attending that ceremony. So again, we have great history and a great DNA helping people out most in need. I think that's the recipe for success. You know, Antonio, I this is one of the things that inspires me the most, and it's so rare to see public figures and members of the community who can actually solve a problem. And you, East Palo Alto is obviously well on its way to, if not, not solving the crime problem. Nobody's ever going to solve the crime problem, but it's sure way better than it was back when I was doing back-to-back-to-back homicide cases out of East Palo Alto. So I always like to ask the big question, and the big question tonight, I think, is why hasn't this happened in other places? I mean, we're seeing crime on the rise in San Francisco, in Oakland, Pretty much, if if you believe the politicians throughout the country, why? What is it that makes Palo Alto special and prevents these other cities from doing what you're doing? Well, I would say first of all, again in 2022, 
when we had five homicides, and I can't ex- I, I can't underscore just how violent and hurtful those were for me. I was a council member for the city of East Palo Alto. We had not only a 34-year-old man get shot and killed in a park in broad daylight, but then three weeks later, a 15-year-old kid on the west side of East Palo Alto get shot and killed in the apartment. These grisly murders, they do something to your system where there's a level of grief and anger and rage and fed upness of enough is enough. And going back to the chief, making it the priority for our police department to solve those murders was so critical for me as someone who attended the funeral of Inti Manitas, 15 years old and expressing to his mother, my grief and my pain and having witnessed that in my twenties and thinking when I was a kid, I saw this playbook and Dean, I saw this over and over and over again. At some point your body just says we have to move forward and stop the insanity of not fixing this problem. So I think it was the commitment from the police to go after every single one of these cases and solve them effectively. And that sends a clear message to the criminals that you're not that we're going to catch you here in East Palo Alto. We're going to put everything we can to stop the violence in our city because we've been through hell and back. And I would also say, once again, it's the investment we're putting into our public safety to make sure we have enough officers on the ground. And I would say it's also the close coordination that we have with residents. You know, we have the privilege of being a tight-knit community we're a bedroom suburb. We're not a major metropolis like Oakland or San Francisco. But I think that community policing model of knowing your neighborhood and speaking to the, the community members and really catching your eye on the ball on those at-risk youth or those at-risk folks who might turn to violence and being able to intervene, whether it's on the social worker level, the principal, the superintendent. We all have each other's phone numbers, right? I went to the I saw a superintendent yesterday. Right for the groundbreaking ceremony for Cesar Chavez. So I think we're blessed in East Palo Alto to have such a close relationship with all the shakers of the community who in turn are reaching out to the most vulnerable. I think that if a city like Oakland or San Francisco want to model this, they really have to scale down and organize it by beat, by area, by what are the cultural ties, what are the issues that particularly affect that area, and and then hearing from the residents and focusing on a multi-pronged approach that isn't just beefing up the police force, although I think having an adequate police force is important, but that as the foundation, working with the centers, working with the churches, working with the synagogues and mosques, because they have their ears on the ground. It's those folks who have their ears on the ground that are going to be able to inform our leaders where we need to invest the money in. Where are those needs? Where where are the gaps most needed to be filled? You know, it seems that there are politicians who are trying to solve the problems, but they're doing it from a top-down way. For example, we've talked on the show about the care courts where homeless people are going to wind up in court and be given a choice between going to jail and having their lives micromanaged by by the courts. Um, seems to me like you would, if if asked, you would say that top-down approach is maybe not the best way to go, that maybe it's a bottom-up approach that that seems to work in East Palo Alto and could work elsewhere, no? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm an elected official, but I do think a lot of times the politicians need to step aside, not in terms of resigning, but in terms of making space. Because here's the thing. For decades, People have already done the work for us. The wheel doesn't need to be reinvented. 
but it needs to be amplified. Again, the Boys and Girls Club, the Free at Last, the one, the one, one, one East Palo Alto. These are nonprofits and organizations which do, which do everything from providing recreational relief for our residents, biking programs, uh, food rental assistance, food relief. You, we need to, as elected officials, understand that we're not the only game in town. That we are just the figureheads of a city, but. True change is only sustainable if you have the people, one, number one, have a sense of ownership over the change, feel that they're a part of the change, that we're not imposing it, that it's organic to the needs of the community. So absolutely. I mean, it comes from the bottom up from the community, but then the council or the, the, the governing body needs to have the political will to bring forth whatever change the community sees fit. And that's not to say that I don't have my own opinion. But it's my job as a public servant to tether and cohere all the different interests at play, particularly in the city in a time right now in East Palo Alto where we do have a demographic shift, where we have residents who've been here for 40 plus years, 60 to 50, neighbors with folks who moved in maybe last year and they're working for a tech company. And how do we massage those relationships so that they both feel like they can talk to each other? It's when you stop talking to each other. It's when you start to close your doors. It's when you start to put your blinds up that you start to see violence facilitate because then you don't have those those red flags, those yellow flags that can then inform residents or neighbors or city council members what's going on. So I think we have to be able to create a culture that fosters safety, that fosters togetherness, that fosters a sense of ownership, that we care about this city. We want the trash to be picked up. We want to be able to know How's Mrs. Johnson doing? What's going on on the other side of the street? Why are they doing donuts over there? Right? There needs to be that investment from residents. Because what happened, what's happening now, particularly with our tenants, if you're only there for every four years, if you feel economically, if you have one foot out the door, then that it's harder to then create that buy-in. So my two cents on that subject. On that subject. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm... T- Jeff Hayden, and I'm joined by tonight's co-host, Emmy-nominated legal analyst Dean Johnson, and we're joined by East Palo Alto Mayor Antonio Lopez. In just a couple of decades, East Palo Alto went from the murder capital of the United States to suffering zero homicides last year. How did they accomplish this feat? Are there techniques that could be applied to larger cities? Tonight's guest, Mayor Lopez, is here to tell us what tools they used and how these tools could be employed elsewhere. If you want, if you have questions for my guest, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. You still have a few minutes if you wish to call in. If you're outside of the Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. You can call regarding any question. You want to talk about a blueprint, how to how to get your leaders to be responsive to the communities and maybe bring about changes like this. Can they be scaled to your city? We have just a guest to speak to, and you still have a few minutes. Dean? Yeah, so changing the subject a little bit you know jeff and i both work every day within the legal system within the criminal justice system and we've seen a massive change in the system we now have instead of uh, courts that are sort of uh, incarceration mills that take in cases and 
figure out what the sentence is going to be and, and put the defendants in jail. We now have a whole system of collaborative courts. We have mental health court that deals with people who have mental health issues. We have veterans court. Um, we have drug court. Um, is that helping or is that hurting? I mean, should we go forward with that kind of thing and have the courts doing more in the way of managing um, the lives of people that come before them? Or um, should we try to put the DA and the courts out of business? Looks like we lost Antonio. Perhaps you could come back in on the phone lines. We're going to bring him back in on the phone. We lost Antonio momentarily, but Mayor Lopez will be back with us shortly. And as we're doing so, I was mentioning earlier to Dean, we have some tremendous shows that are set up for the next several weeks. Next week, we have our old friend Tom Lenz and the regional head of the National Labor Relations Board to talk to us all about new laws. That's next week on Your Legal Rights, where, as always, we're here to take your calls and answer your questions Two weeks out, we have our next, our first segment of Landlord-Tenant in the new year. In three weeks, we have our friend Lance Bayer to talk all about neighbor disputes and what you can do when you have the neighbor next door. We won't discuss, but we are back with um, with the mayor and, and Mayor Lopez. Dean was just asking you about that. If Dean, you want to pick up where you left off? Yeah, so we were talking, I think, about about infrastructure and about the courts in particular. And as I as I was saying, the you know the, the the paradigm of criminal court is rapidly changing. It used to be that the the idea was you bring the case in, you figure out what the sentence is going to be, and the person who has committed the crime does X number of months or X number of years. We yeah. now have a much broader mission in that we have courts that deal with treating mental health problems, courts that deal with drug problems, with veterans who have PTSD. Is this helping uh, or is this hurting? It's absolutely helping. You know, when I, I, I localize it to my situation when I was a student at Ronald Edison McNair. And to shed some context, you know, we had a lot of issues with, with the school district and with, and with gangs in the community, you know, this was the, the 90s and the 2000s. And there was a sense of we didn't necessarily feel safe all the time. There were spikes that broke out. There were, uh, we had to put our backpacks at one point, this is middle school, had to put our backpacks up in the back of the class because someone brought a gun to school a couple years prior, a year prior, and that became the standard practice. But for me, I still remember vividly as a, as a teenage kid, you know, seeing the probation officers. I still remember, you know, the first flippant response, the first impulse that a lot of our teachers had, teachers who may have been there for only three months, six months, maybe a year. There was a small handful who were there for years, but most of them just came about, just came, just came to teach and then left. They were referred to the kids to the principal's office. There were suspensions. There was a few expulsions. And I think that punitive model of punishing someone instead of ever being asked, what's going on at home? How's your mother? 
How's your father? Are you being abused? Are you being traumatized? I think I think in, in the decades since I was a as a young a young kid in school, we've made tremendous tremendous strides in our school district. But I do think about the generations of young kids that were lost and fell through the cracks and became part of the school to prison pipeline and that incarceration mill that that you uh, articulated, Dean. You know, for me, that's what drives me. It's how do we find innovative models that are going to be able to provide our residents who, again, through no fault of their own, are reared in circumstances which may not give them the safest, best place to learn, to live, to thrive. Is a kid asked, does someone, does someone believe in you? Is someone invested in you? And I think that what we've done um, in East Palo Alto and our, our, our work with the, with the county the juvenile justice system, there's more that needs to be done, but I'm so proud of, of the work that we've done in my leadership and leaderships prior to really give people that, that emphasize that educational model. I think we've, we've learned from our mistakes, both as a, as a, as a, as a Bay area, but as a County, as a country, that that doesn't solve things in the long term. We have to give people avenues for bettering themselves. We have to believe that people can rise to the occasion. And you're not only working with that individual and throwing that individual a lifeline, but you're affecting their offspring. You're affecting their near relatives when their kids are in the house without a dad because dad went to prison or uh, because mom was the victim of an offense herself. Uh, and so mom's not in the house. You really do have a much broader sweep when you find better solutions when appropriate. And not only that, if I may add, I remember, you know, so much of so much of the reason that kids got caught up in gangs and trouble was because they were left idle. You know, you think about the socioeconomics of a place like East Palo Alto. Even if you have parents, those parents may need to work two jobs. My dad worked two jobs growing up, right? Uh, in the hospitality industry. He started off as a busboy, then he became a waiter. He's been a waiter at Sheraton in here next to Stanford for 20 plus years. And so you'll have kids and, 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 and folks and children who are left unsupervised for hours on end. That's why those after school programs that we had growing up were so critical because it gave us a space for us to feel safe, a space for us to learn and not be a student of the streets, as they say. So that was really, that, I want to just emphasize that was a critical point, but you know, it's not just trauma, but it's, it's the fact that when you have a, an environment that encourages a certain kind of behavior and you're left to your own devices, that's when a kid who might otherwise have a successful journey might make a mistake that he regret. And I guess one question that was thrown at us was, what's the role of education in all this? It seems that our educational system is making strides to try to bring everybody under the umbrella now. Hasn't historically that been a major a major problem where um, it recreated the inequalities? Absolutely, absolutely. So when I went to school in Edison McNair, in the same year I graduated, maybe it was the year after, it lost its charter to the school district because it was the top. It was in the bottom five percent of the test scores in the state of California. And of course, as a kid, you don't know any of this. You don't know that you're in a school that's disadvantaged, that's Title One, that's going through all kinds of turmoil. All you know is one day the music program's there, the next minute it's not. You know that 
hey, that water fountain that's there, how come it hasn't been fixed? Hey, how come Miss So-and-so is no longer here and she just quit halfway in the year? And you think about how that affects a kid, right? Like, you see that turnover, that rotation, and you start to internalize this idea that somehow this person, that you don't, that you and your kind and your community aren't as worthy as someone next door. Because keep in mind, we're next to Palo Alto, guys. So all this isn't happening in Appalachia. It's happening in the heart of Silicon Valley. So you have these kids who are minority majority who are being bussed out to all kinds of school districts in order to get a better life. And those who do stay here have to figure out how to make things work. So I think that the educational piece, that's, that, is the, that, that sets the stage. That's where all these issues get played out, where you see someone get abused or bullying or lack of food to be focused in class. Um, you know, for me, the, but I, I want to emphasize the glass half full, though. Since that, those days in the 2000s where I, was a school, where I was a student, the school district, our school district, has made tremendous strides, and I'm really proud that as council member, I've been a part of two bond measures to support our local school district. One for Measure uh, I, which brought $160 million to Ravenswood School District, our K-8, through and then Measure W that brought in almost 600 to our Sequoia Union High School District. So, you know, for me, I don't look at history vindictively. I look at it with a tremendous sense of potential that even though we have generations who've been slighted, how can we learn from our mistakes? How can we look at those graphs and statistics and, role, and models and inspire not just the East Palo Alto of the world, but our neighbors to roll up their sleeves and get involved and make a difference in our community? Because that's what changed my life. The fact that those teachers believed in us, believed in me, those, those small handful of teachers that I was able to get, that's what made the difference in my life, and that's what inspired me to come back, ultimately. You know, Mr. Mayor, you've, you've had an opportunity as an elected official to see how the political power structures operate. And you've given us over the last hour some simple, low-cost or cost-free solutions to a huge problem. And I guess my final question is, what are the barriers that that prevent these solutions from being implemented? I mean, why don't we see this this, this sort of change everywhere? You think about the politics of our moment. You mentioned San Francisco, the polarization. You look at what's happening on social media. You know, I worry a lot about this generation you know, millennials and Gen Zs and, and, you know, the successive generations and the kind of world they're inheriting where climate change is more disastrous than ever, where we have such rise and hate come about, there isn't a consensus. You know, I mean, and I don't mean to be nostalgic about Washington, but at least decades ago, there was a sense of overlap with even the most uh, cemented opinions. And now it's just my way or the highway. Now it's either you stick to my side or, you know, you don't stick to, or I'll stick to yours. And so I think that the foundation of our democracy has to be able to say, how can we meet down the middle and compromise? I don't get everything I want, but be able to work together. I think so much of this work necessitates us to be able to make those sacrifices and not get everything we want. Because again, I just feel and I just seen this that in our age of of 24/7 news coverage and technology we face a very and misinformation I'll add 
we face a very formidable forum for, for our democracy because suddenly there's no consensus or common ground about what are the issues at hand. And with that hyper-proliferation of media and news outlets and sources, people may not be arguing for the same thing. And so I think that if we're going to actually move the needle on issues, not only do we have to bring everyone together, but we have to have a common vocabulary to talk about these issues, whether well, it's public safety. I hate education. to cut you short, but we're out of time, and I told you I'd give you about a minute, which is about what we have left, for any closing thoughts you have. Oh, absolutely. First of all, I want to thank the viewers, you both for giving me the opportunity to, to showcase my city in East Palo Alto. And when I think about when my father came in the 1980s, he came in the same week that this city was incorporated. And I think about the tremendous changes that have happened within my lifetime. Even though I've seen too many funerals and seen too many obstacles put in place for many of my classmates and, and, and folks growing up, I have an enormous sense of hope for this city. And I know that East Palo Alto will continue to be a, a pioneer and a vanguard for, for not just the Bay Area, but for the state and even the country. And so I would just say to the listeners, keep an eye out on us, look at the work we're doing in our city, and that I invite anyone and everyone to get to know this community, this humble, hardworking community. And we're going to be impressing and really showing people what we're worth for years to come. Dean Johnson, you want about 30 seconds? Yeah, I think this whole discussion comes down to one word. It's community. Government is neither the solution nor the problem, but government can work to build an infrastructure that can actually solve some of the massive problems that we have, including the crime problem, the education problem, the, the employment problem, and so on. And, I, you know, I, I'm really appreciative that Mayor Lopez came on and told us how it, it showed us by example, leading by example, showed us how it can be done. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. We've been focused on crime and one community that's really got it right. Our guest tonight has been East Palo Alto Mayor Antonio Lopez. And of course, our final guest has been all of you. Our show tonight has been produced by Dean Johnson and yours truly. Please join us again for Your Legal Rights next week for our annual look at new labor and employment laws in 2024. As always, we'll take your calls and answer your questions. A big thanks to tonight's guest, Antonio Lopez, my co-host, Dean Johnson, and back home at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. And remember to know, protect, and zealously guard your legal rights. Have a good night. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.